Excuse me, can I touch you for a minute? <laughs> Excuse me, can I touch you for a minute? Boldly go where no Dan has gone before. Hey, that's a pretty dramatic entrance. Maybe I'll put an echo behind that or something. And it's not true even because lots of Dans have talked about Star Trek and being a fan, but no uh, podcast has yet been with my dear friend Dale Anderson, and he is with us today to talk about what it means to be a fan and specifically about Star Trek. Hi, Dan. <laughs> Glad to be here. Welcome. Thanks for joining us for the Best Dan podcast. And one of the things that, just to get right into it, okay, one of the things that I have long admired about Star Trek people, I admire how somebody can get involved in something so deeply that it uh, you know make decisions about. Star Trek, uh, they become uh, fans at different levels. And one of the things I learned ab about you early on was at the time you had simply, I think when I met you, you had four children. Okay. And it's been a long time ago, I think. Now you have seven. But when you were, when you had four kids, I learned that all of your children were named for Star Trek characters. And obviously, being a non-Star Trek fan, the first thing that I remember thinking was, are they, are they named Captain Kirk or Spock or one of the other characters? But they weren't. They were non-typical Star Trek characters. Uh, so, but that's jumping in too late. I want to go way back to what started, how, how, what started you, what drew you to Star Trek? Well, uh, Star Trek started in the, in the mid-60s, and uh, I was only born a couple years before Star Trek came out, so I don't really remember, I mean, I never watched it live, you know, never stayed up when I was two and a half and watched Star Trek when it was first broadcast. So I'm guessing I started watching it on reruns when it was probably on every night at some time, you know. And I have memories of, of, uh, well, making my parents or or fighting with my parents so I could eat in front of the TV, because you know, I wanted to watch Star Trek. So I'm guessing it was on at, you know, five o'clock or six o'clock, in reruns every night, and I kind of binged through it as a young young boy. Um, for that. And uh, I don't remember wanting to watch other shows that dramatically, you know, because there's current shows on and stuff. But it's hard to think what um, what initially drew me to it. I do remember that uh, um, it had a character that, uh, you know, uh, Montgomery Scott in Star Trek is the engineer. And he's the guy that is, uh, you know, runs the engine room keeps the engines running and so on and I remember my dad was an engineer he worked at Caterpillar and designed um, you know tractor engines that was his job so you know maybe as a young boy you know what what other shows on TV have a pseudo main character that's 
an engineer. This is the engineer. I mean, a lot of shows, you know, whether they're military shows or whatever, have captains, people in charge, and their first officers and doctors, and and then of course shows have cops and you know whatever. There's all kinds of different shows, but typically you'd be hard pressed to find any show that had a character that was an engineer, was the guy in the background getting stuff done. You know, current shows have you know the computer tech or the you know, tech support guy or whatever, but still, can you name a show that where a character is, where their definition is, okay, he's the main, he's the chief engineer. There wasn't you know, one in Dukes of Hazard. There wasn't one. No Dukes of Hazard, chief engineer, no Mork and Mindy, chief <laughs> engineer. Uh, <laughs> you know, Gilligan's Island had the professor, mm, you know, mm. which was once again kind of a nerdy tech, okay. tech character. But I think just generally... Uh, not many shows had, you know, you know, if you if you try to boil down the character the character types in Star Trek, you had you know the captain who was the the leader and the charismatic one and the one that would jump in and make decisions, and then you had Spock who was the um, maybe the the uh, not more intelligent but the one more 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 uh, driven by facts and reason, you know, to make things rather than emotion. And then you had uh, the doctor, the chief medical um, officer or whatever, who was driven more by his passions and was kind of the voice of pragmatism. You know, you know, he'd say, well, if we go down there, we're all going to die. You know, so we, you know, we got to think this through. So those were like the three main, the three main archetypes. Um, and then you had the people in the background. You had the engineer, which is like, I'm not making any of the heavy decisions, but, you know, if something's broken, I'm going to fix it. And without him, they, you know, if you, if you, I don't know, I've never done this, but if you count up all the episodes where they would have blown up the Enterprise or been in really bad shape because Scotty didn't know how to fix something, you know, I'm guessing maybe half the episodes here rely on, rely on Scotty. So even though he wasn't a main character, and I remember playing, playing Star Trek as a kid, you know, rather than other stuff. I always was the engineer. I never wanted to be the captain, make all those hard decisions that affect everybody's life, but... You know, I wouldn't mind being, pre- and that's kind of where I, funny thing is, it's kind of where I've grown up to be. You know, in my adult life, I'm kind of the guy behind the scenes that makes things work for the other people that are making the hard decisions, right? I don't want to make the hard decisions, but if you need the computers to work or you need the server rebuilt or you need something done, something fixed, I'm the guy that fixed it. So maybe, you know, it's always hard to think back what drew me to that show it was probably just the fact that it was a space show. But um, I think what... Uh, because I watched other, you know, there wasn't many space shows growing up. I remember watching shows like The Twilight Zone and um, later on Night Gallery and things that dealt with like sci-fi and horror and fantasy weird stuff. Um, and uh, I also watched Lost in Space, which was a space show, not a particularly good space show. But um, so what initially drew me the, the, to that, it's kind of hard to say, but I think what kept me is the fact that I think Anything you watch, you you grow closer to it if you can put yourself in the position of one of the characters on the screen, you know. So if you look at something, and say, "Oh, I could, I could be that person," or "I'd want to be that person," then, you know, I think something resonates more, and uh, that's probably why I kept watching the show. All right. So your your dad was an engineer. And one of the characters, one of the archetypes was an engineer. So m- maybe there was a little bit of 
connection that way. I mean, yeah. just initially, even if there were no other characters that you connected with here, this guy behind the scenes running the ship was something that was nostalgia even, well, yeah. even then. Something, yeah, something right then to say, oh, you know, because I, you know, I remember wanting to work, wanting to be my dad, you know, wanting to do what my dad did. Hmm. So maybe that was, you know, of course I wasn't conscious of that then. I don't think I thought of that as a 10-year-old kid or whatever whatever I started watching TV and doing that stuff but uh, as I was thinking about it I was like well maybe that had something to do with it you know I'm sure that it you, know, you hear that word and the only other time you really heard the word engineer on television was like okay he's the guy that drives the train on Petticoat Junction you know <laughs> or whatever you know what I mean there you know I mean that's the only time you heard that word you know there really weren't like we said before it wasn't really many shows that had an engineer character you know, and I wasn't a big fan of, I didn't watch, not that I don't, you know, like military shows. And I don't, so I don't know if there was, you know, was there a show, was there an engineer on McHale's Navy? You know, was there a character who was an engineer? But I don't know. I don't yeah, know. was there one on Love Boat? One Love of those Boat? guys had to be somebody who. Yeah, there's got to be somebody running the boat. Out. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think, see, see, that's the thing. There wasn't an engineer on the. Uh, you know, one of those kind of support people in the background that just kind of needed to be there all the time and fix stuff so the ship wouldn't explode. You know, yeah, that's important stuff. Important stuff. It's important. So that uh, it's it's stuck with you. So maybe something like that attracted you, and how it stuck with you is when you look back, and it was thirty years later, and you're watching an episode. Does it transport you back to a, a time of nostalgia, or is it there? What is it you think that keeps you keeps me yeah. watching or caring about it? Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those shows that I'll pretty much always, you know, when I was growing up before you could watch stuff on demand or had stuff on DVD or whatever. If a show, if I was ever flipping channels and a Star Trek episode was on somewhere late at night or whatever, I'd always watch it. I mean, it's one of those things that was just, okay, default, I'm going to sit and watch the rest of this, the rest of this thing for whatever reason. And, uh, and I think a lot of times it has to do with, you know, Star Trek was always a, a, a character-driven stories. It was always what the characters were doing and what decisions they were making and how that was affecting them rather than like a monster of the week type of show where it was like, okay, here's the plot for this week. Some monster appears and we got to get rid of it. Right. It never really was that it was more of here's a situation these people are in and they've got to figure out all of them, you know, how to, how to get through it. And I think that was part of it too, is it never just was one guy just making a decision and everybody following him. It was, you know, a core group of three plus three others or four other crew members that were making all these decisions and figuring out how to deal with whatever problem was happening, whether that was, you know, uh, a mo you know, some sort of monster of the week. They had some of those episodes or whether they went to a planet and realized that some other ship had been there and really messed that planet up, you know, then but what do we do to fix it? Right. Um, or we're at this planet and we've, don't want to interfere with their culture so how do we you know oh but they captured somebody how do we get them back without just 
coming down and saying, hey, we're people with a spaceship and we're going to mess you up because you didn't know about any of that stuff, you know. So once again, I think it was a, an ongoing, the very thing, the, the, the stories were really good. And I know that, you know, back in the day, um, you know, Star Trek was kind of unique in the fact that they they took stories from outside. They didn't just have a, a writer's room and they had whatever with the writers and those they wrote every episode. Because it was such a unique experience and sci-fi really hadn't been a TV staple in the time, it attracted a lot of sci-fi writers at the time, you know, in the 60s, that wanted to write shows, wanted to write episodes for Star Trek. Um, so they ended up taking a lot of stuff from outside, you know, stories that had already been done. And then, of course, Gene Roddenberry and his team, whatever, would, you know, rewrite those to make a teleplay and, and make sure it fit the tone of the show you know, for the most part. Um, but then we got, you know, you didn't really have a lot of people who were who were famous or at least experienced writing novels and short stories clamoring to write stuff for other TV shows. So I think comparatively, the stories we got, we had got for Star Trek were probably a little bit better. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's, you know, because you can watch a TV, watch one now, and other than the fact that it might seem a little bit dated with special effects or dated with, with certain social aspects of the show, I mean, the stories still hold up. You know, it doesn't seem, you know, seems plausible. I mean, I think they did a real good job of where they set it in the future that stuff still seems plausible enough. And I think that's why we've had Star Trek for 50 years, um, because the stories have always held up, and they've always, you know lend themselves to continuation you know you didn't really just run out of well we've done everything there is to do in outer space in the future I mean that's kind of an open ended open ended environment they gave themselves to work with right you know for that so did I answer the question yeah absolutely (laughs) are there any stereotypes of Trekkies that are real or is that a broad brush stereotype that there are stereotypes. Well, I mean, I think I think stereotypes in general are flawed, no matter no matter which one it is. You know, no matter who you're saying, if you're saying that all Star Wars fans are like this, or all Harry Potter fans are like this, or all engineers are like this, or all doctors are like this. I mean, once again, we humans like to compartmentalize and to to simplify stuff, or else we have really a hard time keeping track of all that data. So we shrink things down to whatever. Um, Growing up, I was never, I mean, back in the 70s and even the 80s, there was really no way to know what typical Star Trek fans were like. You know, we had, um, I forget what what year it was, but it must have been late 70s or whatever when William Shatner starred on, uh, as the guest host on Saturday Night Live. And he did a, skit about being at a Star Trek conference and people asking him questions about Captain Kirk and what he remembered and stuff and he retorted with why don't you kids move out of your parents basements have <laughs> have you ever kissed a girl and basically you know railed on the on the fandoms and what type of uh, what type of people they were and stuff and such and you know i'm sure that because uh, um, Star Trek was a, uh, a space show in general, that it attracted a different type of audience 
than a typical drama or a Western or, you know, a cop show or whatever types of other shows it was up against. Um, and, you know, science fiction also attracts a different type of audience because it often deals with stuff that's difficult to wrap your head around, you know. So, so it's just a different, different group of people that are attracted there. Now, whether those are nerdy people or whatever you want to classify that group of people as, um, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't really know if everybody was like that. Um, I was I'm trying to think when I went to my first Star Trek conference. I actually went to a Star Trek sci-fi conference a couple times in my life. I didn't really do a lot of those. Um, it must have been in the 80s because I remember it being in, in Ohio somewhere. I was living in Illinois, and we took a road trip to Ohio to go to the Star Trek conference. And I remember, it must have been in the mid-80s because on the way out, we stopped at a Sony store, and they had got their first shipment of CD players. And I bought, I paid an exorbitant amount of money for a CD player, you know. So, um, so when, when was the first CD players out? Eighty four, early eighties. Early eighties. Um, so anyway, so it must have been there. And I remember going there, and I didn't, I didn't dress up or go in costume or whatever to that. We just me and a, were there people at that time? Oh was, sure. Was the dressing up a thing? Yeah, okay. I think. Um, yeah, that was the thing, and, and uh, um, I think that, you know, people like to identify with a group, and I think that was also a unique thing about Star Trek, is the Star Trek and the show in the 60s and later with the movies and stuff had always a distinct look, you know. So if you wanted to identify with the crew of the Enterprise, well then, you know, you got a, a velour short, shirt and a, in a certain color and a... And a and a symbol on it and stuff, and okay, there you could identify with that. That wasn't a typical thing, you know. People people did, but people dressed up, you know. It's it's you know people dressed up as as cowboys and as as police officers and as military people, you know, for Halloween or whatever. But Star Trek, I think, you know, brought that out to more things. I remember, I did go to a conference later, after Star Trek: The Next Generation started. And I did dress up in costume, and a hmm. bunch of people went, went with that. And that was before you could buy pre-made costumes online, so... You went through great lengths Went through great lengths to find material and to find someone who would sew them and so on, um, and to find all the accoutrements necessary for that. And, uh, um, and I did show up when... Uh, when uh, I forget... Twi- I, Boy, this is this is I forget which movie it was. Before we had kids, so it was it was probably the next generation movie at Midland Cinema. So Midland Cinemas hadn't been opened very long, and and we went to the premiere. Um, went to the premiere on like a Thursday or night or whatever of the new Star Trek movie in costume. Me and me and my girlfriend at the time, and and a couple other people dressed up. And I remember we, we were joking with the theater, says, hey, can we get in free if we come in costume? And the theater said, only, well, we'll hold seats for you, but if you want to get in free, you have to greet people. <laughs> so not only did we go in costume, but we stood in the lobby and greeted people who were waiting in line. So I've done some weird nice. weird Star Trek stuff over, over the years, dressing up. Not a lot. So there, as far as general overarching stereotypes, they're... they're 
might be you know, strength in numbers sort of stuff. You feel more comfortable dressing up weird if you know there's other people dressing up as weird. I didn't mean weird, but as in well, character. You, know, you don't always... And I, you know, I think Star Trek embraced... Especially later on, you know, Star Trek start even, but even in the first, in the you know, back in the '60s, Star Trek embraced differences in a way that no other really show, no other show really could do. You know, you had on the bridge of the Star Trek Enterprise, you had a black woman who was an officer, you had an alien that had different color skin and a pointed pointed ears, um, and uh, um, later on they added a Russian character, a young man, you know, being the, the navigator on the bridge was Russian um, but basically I th and then of course you had all the aliens that showed up and you know Star Trek was unique in the fact of just that that's just the way it was it wasn't like they ever brought any particular attention to all these differences they were just there and they just didn't make any difference that, that people were dressing different or had you know different looks or whatever so I think just in its handling of it and the fact that this okay it's few hundred years in the future and this is just the way it is and no one makes a big deal out of it you know was unique in 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 television you know later on you know especially back in the 60s you know i mean 66 to have a black woman as an officer in a military ish you know situation i mean that it's was unheard of that was a big deal mm -hmm. you know and the fact that it wasn't you know, yeah, they made her wear a short skirt and stuff. Still, it was a big deal. And did, you know, and, and I don't know if you've, I think I just read, um, I forget how many years it's been, but Star Trek has also been credited with having the first, well, you've got to be real specific here now, the first scripted interracial kiss hmm. on television because there's an episode where Kirk kisses Uhura and uh, um, supposedly that was the first not first interracial kiss on TV because there was like live shows and stuff where, you know, you had Sammy Davis Jr. kissing a guest star on a variety show or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, but as far as the first, hey, we wrote this in the script and did it. So Whether that was a big deal. And I think the thing is, at that point, there wasn't, you know, there, no one really looked at that, I think, and went, oh, that's awful or, oh, that's great or all this. It was just, oh, that just happened. Hmm. You know, I mean, even in the in the youngness of Star Trek, they already decided that, What's the big deal? Everybody's a bridge officer and everybody's the same, you know, type of stuff. So I think that that brought out, going back to the question of people dressing up or people willing to, to you know, celebrate that. Um, even back in the day when there's conferences and people getting together and dressing up as your favorite character. I don't know if Star Trek was the first kind of cultural thing to do that. You know, did people, when they went out and meet, the Beatles dress up as the Beatles or did they dress up as Elvis or did they dress? I mean, but then even then you didn't really have, you know, if I wanted to look like my favorite rock star or my favorite TV character, what would you do to do that? I mean, you could dress up like Gilligan on Gilligan's Island because they always wear the same clothes every day, right? And so on. But really, Star Trek offered a unique ability to say, look, I can identify with this TV show simply by putting on a gold velour long sleeve shirt with an insignia on it. Boom. You know, here I am. And I think that was unique. So that also helped if, you know, if Star Trek was the first really cultural thing to do that TV show where people 
<coughs> showed up at conferences. Was there Gilligan's Islands? Gillicon. Gillicon. <laughs> I don't think there was. I don't think there was. Or, or has been. You know, what, what else? I mean. There's a gob of them now. Right. So now we see that. And now we have huge things celebrating that in general, like Comic-Con and, and other sci-fi shows and stuff. But, but uh, you know, back in the early 70s, and you know, and and going forward there to have people gathering together just to celebrate a TV show that was on the air for three years, you know, something resonated hmm. with people to be able to do that, um, you know, because we don't have, you know, we don't have other late '60s shows being celebrated quite in that. And I think it was just a, it was just a happy accident of, of how it all kind of fit. One you know? of those cultural phenomenons. It's hard to repeat. I I wonder the the more I hear you talk about it is I wonder if there was intentionality with the makers to make an inclusive show maybe there's disenfranchisement for maybe they felt the writers felt that the people that have been ostracized up to that point now can all get along and so they're going to give these ostracized people in culture put them all on the same deck yeah and i'm sure that was how intentional that was it's hard to say um i mean because now we have you know the lens of of history and you talk to people who were involved in the show that are still alive and of course they're saying oh yeah we were very intentional about <laughs> that but mm -hmm. um um you know, it's just hard to know how much of that was going on. I mean, you know, Gene Roddenberry hired a lot of the people that were involved in the show were his friends. And, you know, getting together and doing that stuff. And But I know that, you know, they, you know when they, I think when they first, when the character of Spock was first presented to the, to the people at CBS, um, or excuse me, back in, back in the 60s, it was NBC. NBC was the first broad station to broadcast Star Trek. So the people at NBC, um, they pitched at the CBS first, but CBS went with Lost in Space. Hmm. That was their sci-fi show. And NBC um, went with Star Trek. But, um, you know, the people at NBC were saying, oh, he looks too too evil, too whatever. We can't have, can't have that. And um, I do know the, the first pilot of Star Trek had a woman as second in command. And the people involved in that said, yeah, let's, how about we not do that? How about mm -hmm. we not have, you know, a woman be second in command? So I even know, so they were even, you know, pushing the envelope even a little bit more when they first, you know, the Star Trek had a, they wrote a pilot for the, for NBC. NBC looked at the pilot and said, ah, here's some things you got to change. Plus this pilot's just way too out there. People aren't going to get it. So can you give us another pilot? You know, they asked for a second pilot with these changes made and with a more kind of uh, adventurous plot rather than just a real... The first pilot had to do with mind control and people being trapped in a in a cage in a virtual reality of sorts. The aliens were projecting, so the people thought they were one place, but they were really in a cage somewhere. In fact, the episode was called The Cage. And that was the first pilot. And NBC said, yeah, no one's, that's just too weird. People aren't going to, 
people aren't going to go for that. So then the second pilot they had people getting getting affected by weird space stuff and turning turning evil. That yeah, so that was unheard often. of at the time too. That NBC just didn't say, "No, you're done." NBC said, "Yeah, we we like the general idea, but we don't like this first story. Can you give us something different?" Um, so that was interesting too. I think, uh, and then there's some story about how they they weren't going to do Star Trek, but Lucille Ball had just opened Desilu Studios. Um, her and her and uh, and her husband were wanted to create their own TV shows, and they had their own TV studio. Um, and she was friends, or however, is all connected, and convinced NBC that you know she'd they could film it at her new her brand new studios because it had all the latest greatest stuff. And so there's some connection wow. with Lucille Ball batting for the idea. She thought it was a great idea for this type of TV show. Um, and you know the the idea what sci-fi was being used for in the '60s a lot of times, like if you look at like the Twilight Zone. Uh, which is another popular kind of sci-fi, horror, fantasy mm-hmm. stuff, a little bit more variation there. But Rod Serling really wanted to make a TV show with a lot of social commentary. But he didn't really know, okay, how do I create TV? If I want to talk about war and I want to talk about inequality and I want to talk about this stuff, how do I do that? And he supposedly had a friend that said, write a sci-fi show. Because then you can talk about anything you want. You put spaceship or time travel or something in there, and you can be real blatant with this point you're trying to make, but it'll pass the network stuff, and it'll pass the, the you know, people who are, you know, the sponsors of the show and stuff, because they won't get it. They'll shut down when they hear it's a sci-fi show and won't pay attention, and you'll be able to have your social commentary and your stuff going on. So I'm guessing Star Trek was a little bit like that, too, where... You know, hey, we want to make a statement about war. We want to make, and they did. Star Trek made lots of statements about war, and they made lots of statements about more powerful um, cultures interfering with less powerful cultures. You know, they made statements like that all the time. I mean, half the shows—well, maybe not half the shows—but a, a, a lot of number of the shows are the Enterprise going to fix what an earlier ship came and messed up. And a lot of that, you know, is is is, is direct. I mean, they're direct saying no. There should be non-interference with other cultures, right? I mean, they were blatantly saying that, but because it was couched in, oh, this is on another planet, 300 years in the future, then it's okay, right, for that. So I forget what the question was. We see, kind this of, is, uh, <laughs> the, the I am not a Star Trek fan, like ne- nearly like you are, and I have only seen one of the original episodes through. And it's from a DVD that you loaned me. I think it had two or three episodes okay. on it. And it was The Trouble with Tribbles. Okay. Or Tribbles. Or Tribbles. Something like that. So part of the glory of this podcast, it's not just me uh, inviting you on to talk to the choir about things that we both like and, and have trivia uh, fest where we're going back and forth saying, well, did you know about this or did you know about that? This, this is... An educational point, educational show for me, not just to learn trivia about Star Trek, but to really dig in and and hear what it is, of why it resonates with you. And so this is perfect. It uh, so far it's been perfect. So if you've set the bar high, <laughs> uh, the 
Uh, I mentioned earlier that you had, when I first met you, you had four kids at the time, I think, and they were all Star Trek names. Yeah. Uh, you've, had, you've had three since then. The most peculiar that I remember you telling me about, or meta, I think these days they'd call it meta, but most peculiar was the name of a computer that was on the show or the name of a voice that's in the computer on one of the episodes? Yeah, well, it, it's hard to, to, to give you a little background. So when, when my wife Kim and I got married and we had a couple cats and we were looking for names for the cats, we decided to give our cats Star Trek names. So we had a cat named Oxmix and we had a cat named Mog, which uh, Oxmix is from a character in the original series which okay, so just a little uh, little <laughs> side note. So in this in this series, the Enterprise has to go back to a planet that was visited years in the past by another exploration ship that left behind a book called Mobs, Chicago Mobs of the Twenties. And what happened because they left that book behind is the whole planet's culture was now based on the way that the mobsters were in. Chicago in the 20s, right? So one of the gangsters' names was, was Oxmix, right? There was Oxmix and Krako. Jojo Krako was the other big gangster. So anyway, and the Enterprise had to go back and fix the contamination, right? So that these, yeah, anyway. Silly, silly idea, really, but once again, because in sci-fi, you can just, there's the premise, deal with it, and then make what commentary you want on whether or not it, it works or not. And then uh, Moog was a character, there was a character in Next Generation, and that was his father's name. So it was a Klingon named Worf, and he was Worf, son of Moog, um, or Mog, depending on which actor said the name. You know, once again, a lot of times there's pronunciation differences and stuff. Anyway, so we named our cats Oxmix and Mog, and thought that was really funny. And then when we were pregnant with our first child, we gave the the child a code name, you know, not knowing what gender it was or anything, and that was named after a Star Trek character from the first movie, um, which was Ilea in the first movie, uh, Star Trek movie. And then it was one of those things where we got down and, and my wife was in labor and we're in the hospital and all this stuff's going on, and we never really picked a, a real name. And then when it came down and the baby was born and we're looking at the baby, we're like, well, and the nurse is like, what are you going to name it? And we're like, well, and we just stuck with Ilea because it was such a pretty name, you know, and it was a pretty, and it's like, hey, let's just do this. And then, of course, now we had a precedent, right? Now we had, okay, now. Two cats. Now and we have human. two cats and our first baby <laughs> all named after Star Trek. Now we can't quit. And literally, this, once again, so this is back in um, mid-90s. And the internet was just kind of sort of taken off, but really wasn't the huge thing yet. So we were creating our own database of Star Trek names. Because we thought, okay, if we're going to start naming our kids after Star Trek, we didn't want them to be like you mentioned before. This is my son, Captain Kirk Anderson. And, and uh, we didn't really want to be that. So we wanted to pick names that were plausible, um, but still had something to do with Star Trek. So our, uh, we kind of cheated with our, with our second kid who we named Garrick, who was named after a character in Deep Space Nine, but we spelled his name 
more traditionally. The, the character's name was spelled G-A-R-A-K. We thought that's a little weird, but we spelled Garrick's name G-A-R-R-I-C-K, which is an actual spelling of an actual name. We thought that worked out fine. And then we also sort of cheated with, with um, the next character. So another character in Deep Space Nine was a character who had a symbiont. So inside a biped human-looking person was basically a big slug, and they had a symbiotic relationship. But the slug was more or less immortal. The human, ho or the, the not human, human-looking host, the host was actually from a planet called Trill, if you care. So they would die, but then the, the symbiont would get transferred to another host, and that host would then get all the memories and experiences of the previous host and the symbiont, and then so on and so on. So the character we meet's like the sixth or seventh host, and she has all the memories of all the previous hosts. And one of those hosts was named Emony. So we never actually ever meet Emony in Star Trek. All we know is she was a previous host of this character. And then at one point, there's like a ritual where they split all the personalities out into other characters, so we sort of meet her, you know what I mean? So that was kind of cheating, because it wasn't really a character, but it was sort of a character. And then the same thing with Tobin. Tobin was a previous. So we, we got two names from the previous. Oh, the, the slug. Of the, the slug symbiote. <laughs> we got two names from there. And then Dixon was uh, a name of a character. So in Next Generation, they, they introduced the fact that they had a holodeck, which was like a virtual reality gaming system. They'd go into a room and could play a game or whatever, an interactive movie, whatever you want to call it, and become a character in this game or in this movie and interact as though it was whatever. And the captain of the Enterprise, uh, John Luke Picard, would go and play a character named Dixon Hill, who was a 40s detective. So he would want to play this detective, this interactive detective story, he would play the main character, who was Dixon Hill, and then there would be computer-created characters where he could bring people with them. So Dixon was from that, and then probably the one you're thinking about was Aldrin. Aldrin is, <laughs> is named after a character in Deep Space Nine also. A very minor character, had a, a, a minor role on one show, one episode. And his name was, was um, Riley Aldrin Shepard. So this character was named after three different NASA astronauts. Mm. And you only saw... His middle name, because it was flashed on a screen, on the computer screen, so you never even would have known what his middle name was. It was never spoken. No one ever called him Riley Aldrin Shepard. You know, they just called him Lieutenant Shepard or maybe Riley, maybe not even that. Um, so we picked that name simply because it was the middle name of a character, and it was technically showed on the screen, I think, at one point. So that's how we knew what his, most characters, we don't know what their middle names are. So that was just from that. And then uh, um, Anaro is just another uh, uh, um, single character in an episode, um, I think from Deep Space Nine also. So most of our character names are from Deep Space Nine. Cause, uh, okay. Yeah. So anyway, that's, so there's the history that's of where, the, where all the, my kids' names came from. So they're not, hopefully that's not too weird. But, um, it doesn't sound um, too weird. And I'll say Anora sounds like the most Star Trek-y name. 
without knowing anything about Star Trek, yeah. or just from what I've learned from you over the years, but Anara sounds like it's spacey. Yeah. I think Anara and Emini are probably the most unique. My daughter Emini has thanked, thanked me, thanked Kim and me for uh, giving her a unique name because that now that she has her like own website, and it's just emineanderson.com. That was really easy to get. Nice. Cause, uh, um, and now it's very unique. If you search for her, you get her stuff. There's not a lot of other right. Emonies. There's, there's other, Garrick Anderson, we thought that would be a unique name, but I guess there was a whole men's clothing, um, a UK men's clothing store for a while that was Garrick Anderson. That was expelled just like, so you think you're being unique and clever and you find out, oh, well, accidentally so that's no it's no longer a current men's clothing store but my son does have at least one tie that's a garrick <laughs> anderson garrick tie anderson. um and tobin's tobin's a fairly not a common name but you can find the name tobin mm-hmm. um around and you can find the name ilea though typically it's a it's you know it's a it's a um like czechoslovakian name or something Ilya, and it's a male oh, name okay but uh but we actually had somebody else we knew who, whose um, daughter named her daughter Ilea because we named our daughter Ilea. So that name has at least caught on with, with some You're other influential. people. influential. Yeah, so we're at least influential, <laughs> influential at least one other person that I know of who, uh, who's named Ilea because of us. And, uh, but you're right. I think Inara is probably the, is also very unique. Yeah, Though there is like- an Amara. Is it Amara? In in um, speaking of sci-fi shows, in uh, Firefly. Okay. Yeah. 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 So. Oh yeah, you're right. Who is yeah? Okay. So, so sometimes people get, and I remember we had speaking of Aldrin. Um, I think we first told I won't say his name, but one of the pastors here at at Midland Free, oh, because we're recording at Midland Free. Um, <laughs> he was convinced we had named our kid Alderon. Because oh. we were Star Wars fans. Because oh. people get that confused. You know, people think, you know, we're Star Trek, Star Wars, they forget that they're two different things. So he was t- telling his wife that we named our kid Alderaan. And it's like, no, we didn't. His name's not Alderaan. Alderaan, it's just Alderaan. So anyway. When, uh, say, Star Trek was around for a decade, maybe a little more, before Star Wars came along, was there any... Uh, let's see. So in modern times here, DC and Marvel, you got real strong opinions about about the DC universe and the Marvel universe. And for someone who's not a a, a superhero buff, they all fly around in suits and do stuff that they're saving the world. And there's not... There's not marked differences between Superman, for example, and somebody from Marvel that has similar characteristics and can fly. Uh, but back in the day, was there any any Star Wars v Star Trek? Well, you know, it was. It's harder to know. You know, back in the '70s, you didn't really have any any way to easily track. Mm. You know, you didn't have people, you know, hashtagging on Twitter or Facebook saying, you know, you know, one or the other is the better thing. Um, I think from my own personal view, having 
more sci-fi stuff was just great. I didn't have, I didn't care. I thought Star Wars was great when it came out just because, okay, up until that time, if you talked about big sci-fi movies, you had a lot of the sci-fi B, you know, B level movies in the fifties and sixties, you know, basically aliens coming to earth and telling us that drinking alcohol was bad. I mean, I just watched, uh, saucers saucer men from mars or something i can't remember and they would inject people with alcohol and make them do bad things (laughs) so it was pretty much just a riff on alcohol is bad see all these aliens come down and the way they get you to do bad things is by injecting with alcohol it's great it's great you should watch it i recommend it because it's just hilarious or you had invasion of the body snatchers which was pretty much an anti-communist you know hey these pods are coming and changing normal people into these conforming you know, mm-hmm. aliens, you know, whatever. Um, and then you had in the 60s, in late 60s, you had, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is pretty much science fiction for science fiction's sake. I mean, no one can really agree even on what that movie means, you know, but it took place in the future in space and had some stuff going on and it was kind of cool. Um, and then you had TV shows, but even the TV shows that were sci-fi, there wasn't a lot of them. You know, Star Trek ended in 68, and then we had a kind of a resurgence in the 70s because we had an animated series that came out in the 70s, but it only lasted like a season and a half, so there wasn't much going on there. Um, you had a short-lived British series in the, in the mid-70s, Space 1999. You had a season and a half of Battlestar Galactica in the Ooh, 80s. All right, I remember you it. Know, you know, and that had some stuff. But really, you didn't have a lot of sci-fi. No big budget blockbuster sci-fi movies. You know, So Star Wars, when it came out, I think I would guess that pretty much every Star Trek fan thought that was great. And in fact, Paramount, who owned the rights to... Um, I can't remember if the, it, when all the rights changed hands. At some point, CBS and Paramount and stuff got the rights to Star Trek from NBC. But at some point, you know, Paramount was talking about building, doing another Star Trek series. So in the mid-70s, they were actually getting, building sets and hiring people and starting to, to ramp up for Star Trek Phase 2, right? But when Star Wars came out, all the Paramount execs went, okay, k- kill the TV show, we need a movie. So we want a movie out. We want to take what we already have and make that a movie. And they they pushed dramatically. They hired all the best special effects people. I mean, if you're a special effects nerd and you look at the credits of, of Star Trek The Motion Picture from 79, you know, they hired Rick Baker and Stan Winston and all these people who were just known for doing all these incredible special effects for horror movies and sci-fi and what you had at the time. Um, they hired a guy to do all the other and coordinate all this stuff, and it was like hugely over budget because they said not only do you have all this stuff to do, but you got six months to do it because we wanted it for a summer release here or whatever. Uh, they hired Robert Wise to direct it, who had directed The Day the Earth Stood Still and West Side Story and um, Sound of Music. Uh, so they hired a big director to make this big, big movie. A musical. Well, they just they wanted, they wanted it to be this big thing. And if you watch the movie, even if you watch it on DVD, there's 10 minutes of just a space scene and orchestration <laughs> at the beginning of the movie. You know, because they just wanted it, people sitting down and getting in the mood 
we're just going to get you. So it's a it's an interesting movie. The the theatrical cut. If you watch this movie, I don't even. I, I, I'm sure someone's figured this out, but probably only has 30 minutes of dialogue in a two hour movie because there's just they were so enamored with. Hey, we paid all this money for special effects. <laughs> we're showing every mat shot, every model, and we're showing it for a long time, and, and with people just reacting. So the movie is is strangely compelling in one respect, and a total and boredom another respect, depending on who you are. I mean, I'll watch it now. Either either the they've recut it since then for a director's cut to take out some of the super long instances of nothing happening. But from a geek point of view or our fan point of view, you just watch it and go, okay, it was made in the 70s. All these effects are practical. You know, we see all this stuff. That's a model. Someone built that. All these lighting effects. Or someone created that. You know, someone dumped paint in a, in a you know, in water and swirled it around to make this weird looking effect or whatever. So it's kind of neat from that point of view. But uh, um, really the first movie to, to kind of – and then Star Wars – was more of an action film, you know. So I think everybody was real excited about Star Wars coming out, and then the first Star Trek movie came out, and they were hoping for kind of the same feel, and it was more of a here's a bunch of people looking at stuff kind of film. And the plot was really kind of thin of what was going on. But uh, um, they kind of fixed that. Then, then three years later, they came out with the second Star Trek movie, Wrath of Khan, and it was more of an action you know, villain, have a villain and an action and, and stuff going on. And that was kind of, people still consider that one probably the best okay. of the Star Trek movies because it kind of. The original Star Trek movies or even right. including I would think, Eric Banya. And I would think probably most Star Trek fans would still rank Rathacon either as the top or at least top two. Okay. Um, I mean, some of the modern Star Trek films are really are really a lot of fun, but uh, I think uh, I I just watched went and watched it again in the theater because the theater here in Saginaw has their flashback cinema. Oh yeah, yeah. And when they showed, well, two things. I saw it there <laughs> recently, and then bef- like a year before, they had the 30th anniversary or the 35th anniversary or whatever playing in IMAX somewhere, and I went and saw it. I went and saw it there too. So I've seen that movie. I've seen Wrath of Khan probably fifteen times okay. in the theater and on, you know, DVD and Blu-ray and all this stuff. So it's probably my favorite. C.S. Lewis once said that friendship happens when you meet someone and you start talking. This is me paraphrasing. I'm sure he says it much more eloquently. You discover they like something. And then you say, you do? I thought I was the only one. And that's stuck with me over the years about how people can connect. And when I was in high school, late, late in high school, I remember stumbling across Monty Python. Hmm. And it wasn't from my school and my high school in Southern Illinois, I think there were other students that knew about Monty Python and liked it, but it was like this, it, it was a, I don't think there were many people, there wasn't like this little community of people who'd get together and 
I know definitely not listen to the tapes and I've heard stories since then is that people would listen to the records and quote and there was badge of honor for how much you could quote of these things and I didn't have that but apparently at that time and in the 70s and the 80s while Flying Circus and Holy Grail was was big stuff that there were people who who joined together and had camaraderie over over Monty Python yeah. Flying Circus so hearing about that uh, years later it was uh, th there's and com connecting that with the C.S. Lewis thing is is there's something special that some special about feeling like you alone have something that's all yours but then there's something real special maybe when that moves from something that was all yours to now there's other people who have the same kind of affinity for it, the same thing and so now you're part of this community that it it's it's a it's a special place where friendship can happen i think and you know as a culture we build we build some things to build this community most probably the most common example would be like sports teams mm. where you know that's you're encouraged not only to maybe to be part of a sports team but to be behind a sports team you know be a fan of a sports team you know and that's always been, as far as I can tell, always been, you know, my experience, normal thing. So you know, I'm a, you know, St. Louis Cardinals fan, and you're a Chicago Cubs fan or whatever, and that was okay. And, you know, we, we arbitrarily sometimes picked these things. And being a fan and wearing a jersey and a hat or painting your face, if, you know, whatever, that was all considered just fine. You know, no one ever looks at somebody wearing a, you know, a, a Chicago Cubs jacket and go, well, that person's odd. Why are they? But I think until, you know, things like Star Trek or, or Monty Python or, or even more recent stuff now, Star Wars and stuff, where now you've, if you're wearing a, you know, I'm wearing a oh. Star Trek hoodie. It's subtle, but I'm wearing a Star Trek Oops. hoodie right now. Um, but I still think even now people look at that and go, well, that's weird. You know, mm -hmm. that he's wearing a, what's that supposed to be, a Stormtrooper hoodie? or I have a Stormtrooper hoodie. At home. Actually, I don't have a Stormtrooper hoodie. I have a uh, clone, it? clone Trooper. It's, oh, it's, it's orange. Okay. has orange and stuff on it, which was like when hoodie, that was, I bought that when, before that was a thing where you could just buy hoodies that looked okay. like other stuff. I thought it was really cool. Anyway, so I even have some Star Wars stuff. I have a lightsaber and I have okay. a, a Clone Trooper hoodie. So nice. I'm not pure Star <laughs> Trek. I also have an Indiana Jones hat. <laughs> so, and I like to wear my my uh, Star Trek hoodie and the Indiana Jones hat and carry my lightsaber all together oh, just, all to, of them. Just, just to mess to... with people. Um, <laughs> I don't think you'd ever do anything like that. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, you're, you know you're right. So people like to like to identify with stuff and like to have that both, you know. Um, I want to be part of this. I want. I, I like this because it says something to me. And then when you hear it, it says something to somebody else. You know, then that's like you said, a, a way to connect. And, and we do that with a lot of things, whether it's what church we go to or what sports team we like or what car you drive. I mean, I drive a Scion XB, and whenever I'm driving around town, and another Scion XB drives by, I'm like, hey, <laughs> that person, they have a weird taste in cars, just like me. Um, I wonder if they own two of them. Um, <laughs> Um, so I think Star Trek was a lot like that um, early on, is and I think that's why it. 
I think there was a lot of people that thought, oh, Star Trek is speaking to me because of whatever. And then they meet somebody else and they're like, oh, me too. And oh, I have a friend that does this too. And oh, look, do you, look at this. There's a conference going on in Toledo where people are gathering together just to celebrate Star Trek yeah. and stuff. And, you know, George Takei is going to be there or whatever. I mean, these these weird things that all of a mm-hmm. sudden, you know, crop up. And you're like, they have Star Trek cruises now. I've never been on one, but basically the whole cruise ship is Star Trek fans. And, you know, now it's not hard to find a dozen people who have been involved with Star Trek because there's just been so many mm-hmm. offshoots of this. You know, over 50 years. So there's a lot of stars or, or stars from the shows to be able to join you on the cruises right. or the Star Trek cons or the. Right. The I, th- I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if Star Trek was the first cultural thing to spawn that type of thing, but. Maybe some listeners have some strong opinions. Or you mentioned Monty Python, and just to, when I was in college, dressing up as Monty Python characters was a thing. And the little group of people I, I lived in a in a Christian cooperative house with uh, uh, with twenty some other guys. They dress up just for parties, or just or to, to, to be. I'm trying to think. Of, I'm trying to think of the reason. I can't really put my finger on what the special occasion was or the reason, but I remember people dressing up as as Monty Python characters. I I really love and, it. Uh, it. Must have been from. Holy Grail. I mean, the lumberjack. The lumberjack, lumberjack thing. The there was a guy dressed who, in Monty Python who had a who had a cloth around his head and would hit himself in the head with a brick. <laughs> he was a recurring <laughs> recurring character in the show, and people would dress up as, and he would talk really funny. That's so. It's so cheap. anyway, people dress don't just dress up as Star Trek right. pe- people. Uh, Monty Python has had a similar effect on. Yeah, on people too. So, it's we we think we don't think a thing about fifty thousand people going to a football game on a Sunday, but if five thousand people show up at Star Trek convention, right. be like, whoa! Yeah, there's just it's something about it, and I, it's something culturally that even in this age of acceptance. Or uh, inclusivity. There's just something. That's, I don't. Just, when I say stigma, I think stigmas often have a negative context, but maybe it is just a <coughs> stigma. Maybe it's jealousy. <laughs> and so they're like, "Gosh, look at all the nerds or geeks doing that thing." Yeah. But uh, and that's what I say about fifty thousand people going to watch football. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little give so, and take there. That's right. <laughs> Any signs of Star Trek slowing down? It it doesn't look like it. I mean, I I, I have a, I've been I don't know if I'm unique, but I've pretty much watched, ingested, dealt with whatever all pretty much all the contempor- all the different Star Trek stuff over the years. So I watched the original series, like I said, not when it first was broadcast, but over and over again on on uh, on reruns when the Next Generation came out. In 87, I was there in front of a television on the day it broadcast watching the show, and I watched all the different shows. And then when it split off into Deep Space Nine, I watched those shows. And now I probably had a tape 
I could tape them now on a on a you know on a video recorder, and I would tape them so I could watch them again. And then when Voyager came out, I sat down when it first came out and watched them. And uh, uh, when when the, the the last series until recently, um, Enterprise was shown. I I watched all of that, you know, and and made it through the end of that. You know, once again and taped them and watched them again. I bought them when they came out on DVD or on VHS, when I could buy them on VHS, I bought them so I could watch them. And then when they came on DVD, I bought them again. Bought a few of them on Blu-ray now again. Um, so I've watched all of that stuff and kind of just generally said, okay, I'm just going to watch them. And certain ones are different quality or different feel than the others, but I've watched that. When the, when the new movies came out, when J.J. Abrams made the movie in 2009, I was very excited about that, and I thought that was a great, a great uh, reimagining or reboot or whatever of the characters and, and, and a show. And there's been three of those and hopefully we'll get more. There's rumors that um, that we're gonna have more movies. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, there's rumors that Quentin Tarantino is a big Star Trek fan and wants to do a grittier, <laughs> Great. you know, grittier Star Trek. Um, CBS um, last year came out with a new Star Trek series, Discovery, which since it was only, only uh, shown on CBS All Access on their own streaming service. It's hard to know how well it did because it doesn't, you know, it didn't have the same metrics that are used for everything else, but they're making a second season, which is coming out in January. There's supposedly a TV show now that's in the works starring Jean-Luc Picard, who is the captain of the Enterprise in The Next Generation for seven years and for various movies, that now they're going to have a show that focuses on him just 20 years later. What's what's an ex-captain or whatever, whatever he's doing in 20 years later, they're just going to do a show. I don't know what it's going to be about, but they're doing that. I've also heard that um, there's a new animated show um, being being uh, worked on, which is uh, called uh, going to be called Lower Decks, and it has to do with all the people. You know, we see... You know, these, these starships have 100, you know, the original series had 140 people on the ship. Next Generation had 1,000 people on the ship, whatever, everybody. So, but we only see, you know, maybe eight, nine people all the time on the ship. So what are the other people doing? So supposedly this animated show is going to be focused on the people in the lower decks. And they, I heard a little sub uh, synopsis that says, well, we want to know about the guy who's sticking the yellow cartridge in the food replicators so that the banana comes out at the top. That, that's the guy we want to know about. We want to, so What motivates him? What motivates him to get up out of bed every day and take care of the, the refilling the, the, the cartridges in the food replicators? So that Time they can to get, make the banana. That's right. So, so it sounds like you know, at least CBS has, has an idea to do that. And, and throughout the years, there's always been Star Trek novels, um, you know, there's been a whole, you know, section of that type of stuff going on, all kinds of Star Trek, you know, paraphernalia and games and action figures and stuff. So I can't imagine that anytime soon, you know, they'll run out of stories to tell or, or characters to create and explore. And I have, I, I have, I like the Star Trek, the discovery, the new, the new TV show. It's a lot different because if it wasn't, what would be the point? I mean, there are people that don't like it because it's not like other Star Treks. And pretty much no other Star Trek has been a lot like the previous one. Um, and that's kind of the point, 
right? I mean, if you're a if you're creating a TV show and you're an artist or a writer or whatever you're involved, an actor in these TV shows, you just don't want to do what Shatner did 50 years ago, right? You want to put your own stamp on it, your own mark on it, your own spin on it. And of course, now we've got all these techniques and all these technologies to make things look a lot cooler. And why would you make a show that looked like something that was made in the 60s on a shoestring budget um, when you don't have to, right? So Discovery takes supposedly takes place 10 years before the original series. Hmm. So there's been people that have complained that it doesn't look like the original series. And it's like, well, of course it doesn't because this is 2018 Ooh. and not 1966. And it shouldn't look like so. I think I'm probably more forgiving um, as a fan. Just like if you're a fan of a sports team and they don't do so well, you don't say, "Okay, I'm done watching." Well, maybe you do, but I would assume that most people don't say, "I'm done watching the Cubs play." Okay, I'm tired of waiting for them to right. whatever win one World Series in right. hundred years or whatever. Right. And- they still sell out every game. So I'm kind of that type of Star Trek fan. I'm going to give every piece of Star Trek that comes out the benefit of the doubt. And then, of course, once you get into something, you know, like with the new J.J. movies, it becomes, even though they're all different actors, it becomes, oh, here are some characters that I've been watching on, you know, 79 TV shows and, you know, nine movies over the years or whatever. I've been watching these characters do things. And here they are doing more things. You know, it's like, okay. I'm going to watch it, just like most people sit down and watch their favorite sports team every week or whatever, even if they do badly. You know, they're going to watch them next Sunday. You know what I mean? So I I have a lot of people who are professed Star Trek fans, (laughs) people I know that don't like the new stuff because it's, now the Klingons don't look right or the ship doesn't look right or they never had this technology back then. It's like, okay, you realize it's a TV show, right? And, you know, I mean, I've never, you know, you got to also realize that these are TV shows, these are movies, their primary goal is entertainment. They're not really, you know, their their main goal is not to make sure everything fits in some weird canon that can't be broken because, you know, you have a different actor playing it or you have a different thing that happened that never happened before. You know, you gave a main character a, a sister that they never mentioned ever before or whatever. It's like, well, why not? Why not do that? It's a TV show do whatever they want, right? I remember when the first X-Men was coming out in the cinema, and there was much to do about making sure that Wolverine's knives sounded right <laughs> when they exited his hands, ex- exited his fists. And I don't know if there was ever any precedent set for how they should sound other than the the, whatever the comic book artist right. wrote, schnick, schnick <laughs> that had to sound like that word that was used. Uh, but some folks can get real. Yeah. It, it's the maybe it's the auteurs. Maybe it's what makes people feel special is to have some sort of opinion about something yeah. and be vocal about it, even if it's about something that other people would say is stupid. But because they have an opinion, it makes them feel better. Yeah. I don't think all opinions should be all spewed <laughs> out, but in context, everything's in context. In context to Star Trek stuff and the battle between DC and Marvel. Right. It's if you have a strong opinion about entertainment choices or how it was filmed, it's I think it all adds it can add a lot of positive value and meaning. Yep. 
So I think that even though some people would, would, would label me a very extreme Star Trek fan, naming my seven kids and now mm-hmm. four cats after Star Trek characters, the two originals are gone, and now we have two other cats mm-hmm. named after Star Trek characters. Sorry to hear that. Well, you know, cats, they, they don't live forever. <laughs> um, I try to be a, a kinder, gentler Star Trek fan and not, you know, hey, you can, you can if you don't like... You know, there's people that don't like Deep Space Nine or people that don't like the new Discovery. And, and and I will agree with a lot of people that don't like a lot of things about Enterprise or Voyager or whatever. I mean, they're just because they're Star Trek stuff doesn't mean they're all perfect or the shows were all, you know, premium, you know, storytelling or whatever. Mm-hmm. Some there, There's some Star Trek stuff that's just, you know, even I'll watch them now and go, yeah, that's not good. That's that's <laughs> maybe they maybe they shouldn't have done that. And a lot of ones that are just really awful that I'll just defend with my dying breath that okay, this isn't awful. You're you're not getting it, right? But I try not to be okay. try not to be too much like that. So right? maybe like, you have seven hills you die on <laughs> that's right. for Star Trek. I have some hills. These I are the ones. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not dying on all the hills. <laughs> not all of them. You know, that's just that's too much to deal with and and I've never, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I, I've bought the toys, and I, I wear the the hoodies, and I've got the paraphernalia and stuff. But oh, I guess it's it's all on a spectrum. There's people yeah. who are, you know, way, way, way more dedicated or or fan, you know, whatever yeah. you want to call it, than I am. And there's people who are less. And like I've seen people arrange to build houses and rooms that look like the yeah. the deck. I don't or have other Star Trek rooms. other stuff. So on a scale of one to ten, let's see. It's I know it's I don't want to make it too broad of a brush, but on a scale of one to ten, when it comes to let's limit it to trivia. Okay. Where would you rate yourself? Zero being me, <laughs> knowing that there's a a show in the original series about dribbles, to ten. Like, where would you rate yourself? Well, do you remember, um, probably don't remember this, remember the before the internet, there was all these online services. There was an online service called eWorld. Do you remember eWorld? Yeah, I, I don't E-World. remember eWorld. Well, me, I don't know how many people were on eWorld, I don't know how many Star Trek fans were on eWorld, but I did totally dominate an eWorld <laughs> Star Trek trivia contest once. I mean, I don't think anybody <laughs> even had a chance to get a question wrong <laughs> because I had the right answer way before. Do you have a, else. a trophy or something? Uh, I got a free uh, audiobook, free Star Trek audiobook Ooh. from way back then. Um, but I, uh, I have most of my Star Trek knowledge is from you know watching the shows, watching the movies, um, um, reading some of the novels, and reading some, you know, extra behind the scenes books. Back in the day, you know, when you'd go to this bookstore and you'd go, oh, look, there's a book about the making of Star Trek or whatever. Um, but uh, I've never, you know, if I were to go to some place that was so so generally, or so I'm probably a pretty good Star Trek trivia within your normal group of people. You know, like if me and my family get together and play, you know, Star Trek DVD trivia, which we own, we own that in like Seinfeld. Remember those <laughs> DVD trivia games? Yeah. They don't like playing with me because I get them all right, right? <laughs> but if I went to some place that was specifically Star Trek trivia, and then you had people that knew weird Star Trek stuff because they studied it, 
I probably wouldn't be very good. Okay. You know, so it depends on who my so I'd probably be right smack in the middle or maybe a little bit higher than the middle. It, because I probably wouldn't do very good against people whose goal was to know everything master. about Star Trek. You know so what I mean? So what would be an example of a trivia question that a grandmaster <laughs> would know uh, what is the color of the chair that was in uh, Picard's Right. I mean, you get stuff like what is the seven. there's scenes where Kirk in the original series enters in, he presses a bunch of buttons on his personal safe in his quarters <laughs> to open up where he keeps the special what is instructions. Access and that's that's not only a weird trivia question, but that's one of the things that there's like two episodes that show him opening the safe and he does a different combination ah, in each one. Nice. Right. So so there's things like that which I will admit right now I do not know okay. the combination. For either A, one. I don't think the buttons are labeled. So it's up open to interpretation. Oh, so you'd have to say he at hits one at the top right, left corner you know. or one at the And then there's things like what is the what is the number uh the the cabin number of McCoy's quarters, right? Stuff like that. Okay. So I'm not very good at those types of things. And it used to be things like um um, you know, what's Captain Kirk's middle name? He often says that his name is James T. Kirk. But what's the T stand for? So to me, that's an easy question. But I'm guessing it's not. Um, though it was used in the in the J.J. JJ verse movies pretty prominently at the beginning of that. Tondell? So, no, it's Tiberius. Hmm. So, but, uh, but that was pretty much hidden... And known just by really hard, hardcore Star Trek fans until the J.J. movie in 2009 where they use it twice. Both when in the beginning of the movie where they're trying to determine what they're going to name their kid. You know, because she has the baby in the middle of the first scene. Um, and George Kirk, his dad, is there, you know. And she says, we should name him after your father. And he goes, Tiberius, no, that's the worst, you know, type of stuff. Anyway. So what was the first, was J.J. Abrams the first kind of reboot or not reboot? Yeah, up until the J.J. Abrams movie in uh, 2009, all the original series characters, they had um, um, six movies that starred the original actors and the original crew from the TV show. And then they had a seventh movie which had some of the original series actors and also the next generation actors. So the seventh movie was the connection between the, the two bridge to the 21st and then they century. had some movies that had the next generation actors in it and then they didn't do much for a while until jj came and rebooted okay in the original series universe but with different actors and then of course that movie has some time travel comic book new two universe spots, types right? of things right so it has a it has a typical something happened in the past and now we've split into a different timeline type of thing um, so now I they can. Saw, I saw that at midnight, being e- not even being a fan. I saw our local cinema used to show like the opening nights midnight. So if it opened on a Friday, you go at twelve o one. These days it's like six p.m. and nine right. o five. You pick which one you want. You don't have to stay up as don't late. But even not being a Star Trek fan, I went to opening night midnight, and. All throughout the movie, all throughout the people sitting there, something, some dialogue would happen on screen, and you'd hear, huh, yeah. or, 
some reactions. There was so much going on that folks were yeah. were getting clues for their to win their next trivia or to right. connect some dots. I know how it is. Yeah. Like, oh, they said this thing. I just watched the most recent Fantastic Beast one, and they give you these little clues as to what's going to happen in 70 years or why some character is like he or she is in 70 years. Yeah. Uh, I guess at the heart of what I, I, I can finish on here is what kind of, uh, what kind of meaning we've talked, we've, we've talked on it uh, on and off here throughout it, but is there any last thing that you'd want to say about the kind of meaning that you might find in Star Trek? It doesn't have to be something that guides your soul <laughs> or uh, you know, moves the world, but is there, is there something you think that, unites or unifies or is there something that helps people connect or helps them individually because they find that you know well it's courage to boldly go where no man or it is the quest and i'm i'm searching for answers and i want things to i want good to triumph over evil and that's what this show is a lot about or the inclusivity is there is there anything that kind of fuels from a, a meaning perspective for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess more broadly, I mean, we always, Star Trek showed a couple things. Star Trek showed that, okay, humanity still exists, you know, 200, 300, 400 years in the future. It's not a dystopian future. Right, or... <laughs> they've never really shown, like a lot of sci-fi has shown, that, hey, look, 200 years from now, everything is just horrible. People are you know, living in the Australian outback and driving weird cars all around, right? You know, or whatever. So Star Trek has always shown that, look, we've, we've made progress, and at least, while not perfect, you know, we, we've learned to get rid of a lot of the baggage that people would think is happening here in current days or whatever, whether your current days are the 60s or whether they're the 80s or whatever. And Star Trek has changed over the years. I mean, the 60s had a little bit of that feeling of, look, we've figured it out, Right? And but we're still going forward fixing things. I mean, it had that kind of American, we won World War II, now it's the 60s, let's have Americans fix things. Kind of had that feeling. The Federation was going out and fixing things, right? Next Generation kind of had the more feeling of, of, okay, we're out here and we're smart and we're exploring, but we're not the smartest in the universe. You know, we're, we're still learning and we're going to take more of a, if we get here and you're doing things differently, okay, that's fine. We're not going to fix just because you're different. So, so the next generation had more of that feel. And the next generation suffered. There's a documentary that I think was on Netflix talking about the first two seasons, how the, how the writers were constrained to say, okay, nobody can bicker. Everybody on the, in the Federation and on this ship has to get along because that's the way it is now. You know, we're all working together to figure out problems and we're not going to be upset with each other. So it had this weird feeling of, okay, you're a TV writer. You've got to write TV show and none of the main characters in your, in your show can have any dramatic tension. You know, how, how, so everything had to come from external stuff, right? So Next Generation kind of had that accidental feel of, Look, we've we we're, we're all working together for common goals all the time, right? 
So that's kind of a neat feature, though that's kind of different than what the original series had. Other Star Trek has had, like Deep Space Nine, was like, hey, we're in a bad situation. We don't know who's right and who's wrong, and we just got to deal with this bad stuff, and sometimes we make good decisions, and sometimes you make bad decisions. It was a lot more realistic as far as compared to what really goes on in real life. They kind of jettisoned the whole, we all get along, because the Federation was there, there was Bajorans, there was Cardassians, they were all supposed to work together, and later Klingons, and they all had different ideas of how things should be done. So there was a lot more dramatic tension, right, just kind of built in. And then you had other shows... um, uh, like Voyager that says, okay, what happens if you have a crew of people and they're just all of a sudden out in the middle of nowhere and they're just trying to get home, you know, and how are that, how is that going to work out? So the funny thing about Star Trek and what it kind of means to me is that each piece of Star Trek kind of had a different meaning, you know, um, about what that happened. Some things, like I think a lot of the newer stuff, is just, okay, it's just the simple thing of, of here's some, some people doing some interesting things and it's a lot of fun and it's entertaining and it's, you're not really looking for a lot of deep, deep meaning. Um, but, but I think more, more than anything else, it's the fact that you know, everybody always thinks of, hey, boy, times are tough now. Boy, the world's messed up. You know, or you go back a couple decades. Boy, we're going to blow ourselves up with all these... You know, we're on the bridge, brink of atomic war all the time, and you go back again, and you're like, okay, got world wars and stuff going on. Everybody thinks the time they're living in is kind of the worst time to be. And you go back 500 years ago, and you're like, okay, no one, who wants to live in the, you know, 1500s? There was nothing. You know what I mean? Plagues and everything else. So, so I think what Star Trek shows kind of generally is, hey, look, we make it to at least another point. Is it? better than we are now well in some aspects maybe it is better but are we still making mistakes are we still going to planets and maybe messing with stuff we shouldn't mess with because we're human and we're flawed and we're going to make bad decisions (laughs) even if you have a crew of people that were trained to go someplace i always find it interesting a lot of the original series episodes maybe not a lot but at least two or three have to do with other starship captains making bad decisions so here you got supposedly the people who have been trained to command a starship, and there was only, you know, a dozen starships. So in the all of whatever, this military organization, the Federation or Starfleet, whatever you want to call it, there's these are the best of the best, right? And they went out in space and went someplace and made a bad decision, and now Kirk and his crew's got to fix it. And I just always thought about that. It's like, okay, it doesn't matter how trained you are or, how evolved you are, or whatever you want to call it, at, because we're human, we're going to make bad decisions and have to deal with those bad decisions. And hopefully, if we continue to do that, you know, fix our bad decisions, then we'll be okay. You know, maybe someday we'll all collectively make the ultimate bad decision as a race, and we really will be done, you know. But Star Trek shows us that, well, at least in this universe we haven't done that we haven't just decided that we're going to blow ourselves to smithereens right we haven't ruined the earth we haven't ruined everything we were able to fix our bad decisions Mm. you know the one of the guys i listen to on the web talks about the we're pretty good at humans in general have been pretty good at fixing slow moving disasters You know, because you go back and it's like, okay, we're going to run out of food or we're going to blow each other up or whatever. These All these 
things that are going to happen. So we'd like to, like to think that we're going to continue to be good at fixing slow-moving disasters. So as long as we have a little bit of time to fix our problems, we'll look at it and go, well, this is really stupid if we let this destroy ourselves, right? What's the point of that? We should continue on. So I think that probably more than anything else, you know, if you're trying to look for some philosophical insights into Star mm-hmm. Trek, that's probably the simplest thing. But really, realistically, you know, you go back, like I said before, it's a TV show. It's meant to be entertaining. I'm not going to try to read too much into it. Okay. There's things about it that I think overall I like more than I don't like. And uh, I've watched a lot of stuff again with my kids. And there's things that I've watched that, that I went, wow, I must have really... I must have really been a fan to make it through that year of television, you know, because, oh, my goodness, it, it's not really very good, you know. So there are things that, uh, that struggle. And, uh, so are there kids, I'll just finish, we're real close to the end. Okay. Uh, are there kids today being born out here at the hospital whose parents do not like or don't bring them up in a Star Trek tradition and their kids today that will stumble upon the old star trek episodes and through their sensitivities or through their their likes or dislikes be able to watch that series and decide to go ahead and binge the rest of them on netflix I would probably, if I had to guess, I would guess that those are probably pretty rare. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's reasons. I mean, there's always, there's always kids that will look at things and say, oh, you know, my parents are, are not Star Trek fans. They hate sci-fi, whatever. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide I'm going to go back and watch old sci-fi stuff, right? Or whatever, 60s TV, just in general, Twilight Zone. Um, I will say most of my kids, except for my oldest son, have not really embraced Star Trek um, for whatever reason. Uh, it's not like I make people sit and watch it, you know, or anything. It's a litmus um, test to be your friend. That's right. It's like, Case okay, you can't be my kid anymore <laughs> unless you can tell me why this episode is really good. Um, so, so that doesn't happen. But I don't know. I don't know if people discovering it you know, just because of the different pacing and things that that also vie for a kid's time these days. You know, I don't think it would be... I mean, 60s TV show in general, 60s movies, 70s movies are things you really kind of have to watch, you know, uh, because you have to get a lot of more... I mean, not a lot more subtlety, but they're just paced different, you know, so you can't... You can't really watch them half distracted and get stuff, get all the stuff out of them, and so and so on. At least I think that. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but uh, but I don't know. I don't think there's a lot of kids growing up now that are going to decide they want to watch all the old Star Trek. Um, I mean, I think the new movies and the new series, you might have people, you know, watching those, you know. But that's also we're we're at a you know, beginning of whether or not CBS can make all that happen. Um, I think that's why they've, you know, they had to embrace, you know, Star Trek has always had that problem with the movies 
and with other TV shows, who are you writing these for? Are we making a movie or a TV show for our existing fans? Or are we creating this movie or TV show to attract new fans? Mm. And that's a weird, that's always going to be a hard line. I mean, that's probably the worst thing ever as far as, as you know, when you're doing a TV. And that, that's the curse of trying to do a reboot or a remake of a show is who are we making this for? You know, if we're going to make a new Ghostbusters movie, do we make it to appease the fans of the original one? Or do we want it to appeal to a brand new group of people who might have hated the original one? Or maybe we make it for neither of those or parties. Or maybe we accidentally just... make it for nobody <laughs> and decide that, okay, Chris Evans is really funny. Um, or excuse me. Um, Thor. Uh, Thor, whatever Hemsworth. His, yeah. Chris Hemsworth is really funny. Um, so there's always that problem, and Star Trek has suffered with that. I mean, I think that's, for a long time, the movies, the first six, seven, eight, nine movies, if you weren't a Star Trek fan, you'd go watch those movies, and you'd be, I don't understand anything. You know, I don't know who these characters are. I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. You know, why are they going back? Why is this old guy now a kid? Why? You know, you don't, you're just going to be, you're just going to be confused. And I think J.J.'s movies made it a little bit better, but still, I think they were a good balance between, hey, if you'd never seen Star Trek before, you'd like the movie because it was a lot of fun, and then if you did know Star Trek, you'd see all the little, ooh, look, there's a triple in a cage. And, oh, look, here's, I know who Admiral Archer's dog is. I mean, there's all kinds of things in that movie that only Star Trek fans are going to smirk at, right? And that's the only reason they're in the movie. But if you don't know it, it's not like, it hits you over the head, and you're like, okay, do I need to know who Admiral Archer and his dog are? No, it's just a side thing, you know, for different stuff. So, um, so anyway, I, I don't know how young kids growing up, I don't, I don't think they'd be, I think it'd be really hard if they weren't pushed gently okay. to watch stuff. And now you run into situations where, you know, they've remastered the original series, so that it looks nicer, so you can watch it on HD and Netflix. They've remastered the next generation. But they didn't do that with Deep Space Nine because movies, TV shows made in the 80s and the 90s were filmed on film, but they were edited on videotape. So the best quality they have of, of the finished product for Deep Space Nine is videotape quality, you know, is... 480p Without or whatever going all it. the way back to the film. So they, re- so what they did with Next Generation is they went back to the film and re-edited and recreated all the special effects for HD. Wow, and there's uh, there was some great consternation, a cry over Star Trekky land that's like, this is one second longer. Right, or whatever. This transition wasn't in the original. But re- but it was super expensive. Not bad. Because basically it cost nearly as much, or maybe even more, to now re-edit all that film back to HD that it probably cost in production in production right. time originally. So like we'll never probably never see an HD version of Deep Space Nine. So now when you go watch that on Netflix, it's in four three. Okay. It's dark, it's grainy, you know. Doesn't look as bad as Babylon 5, but it looks pretty bad. <laughs> um, there, That's just another reference. Some other people will have to look up. And okay. It's like Babylon 5. What? So I can include a few things in the show notes, but last question would be, where would people start 
He's, you've piqued their interest. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I don't like sport either. Uh, uh, I, I, but I'm not a, a fan of Star Trek. Where, where would you recommend people start? Um, Some highlights. Yeah, I mean... It's a hard thing to say because there's different things about each series that are going to put you off when you start. If you start watching the original series, I mean, you may just be put off by, you know, it was made in the 60s and there's some 60s social stuff going on and, and, and you know, all the women are wearing, you know, go-go boots and short skirts and stuff. And you might just say, okay, that's, I'm, I can't deal with that, right? Because that's just way too... 60s um and you may you know and acting in tv shows in the 60s are different i mean everything about the show is just a different feel than a modern show next generation is a little bit better but the first two seasons of next generation can be are, are really not i mean there's good episodes but overall that's a bad place to start because there's some that are just really bad i mean the third season Basically, anyway, if you want you want some trivia about that, the first two seasons were run by Gene Roddenberry and his cronies, and they all had this idea, and they wouldn't let new and the, the new and the modern writers and people they were hiring do their stuff, and then they pretty much got all kicked out by the end of the second season, and then you had some modern, contemporary at the time writers take over, and the show went forward, and that's really when it started to get good. You're saying when the next generation came in? Yeah, so if you wanted to start with the, the, the next generation, the series, that ran for seven years. It started to get really good in the third year, okay. right? The first two years are a little rough. So if you tell somebody, oh, you should start watching the next generation, they're going to watch the first two years and go, oh, there's some craptastic <laughs> television misled. here. Yeah. <laughs> and then you watch Deep Space Nine, which is probably the closest TV show to how modern TV shows are made. And it also has a lot more, uh, you know, character conflict. So it's more like we're used to watching in current TV, right? Where a lot of it's a lot of conflict between the main characters, right? And that's the way a lot of TV is written. Next Generation doesn't have conflict between the main characters. Most of the conflict is from the outside, you know. Oh, the all the main characters get along, but these aliens, they're jerks, okay? So that's where this stuff comes from. But Deep Space Nine has the problem that now if you want to watch it, it doesn't look great, right? You watch it on your big TV compared to HD quality stuff, and it's hard to watch because it's not. It actually looks worse than the original series because the original series was filmed and edited on film, and they have redone all the special effects for it. So it actually looks relatively modern, you know, as, as you know. As well as it can be, you know, the sets and stuff are still '60s, but that was had pretty good production quality for back then. It actually ages pretty well, unlike '60s Doctor Who. Not to disparage any Ooh. Doctor Who fans, there's a there's a fight that's out there somewhere. <laughs> but most people will agree that early Doctor Who stuff didn't look great and didn't age well. And compared, I mean, as a kid, I didn't watch Doctor Who because I didn't like, I couldn't get it over the fact that it looked bad terrible because really compared to to star trek at the time it really did look bad now as an adult or an older person looking back and watching old stuff you kind of appreciate it for more than how the sets looked but back when i was watching star trek when i'd see doctor who i'd be like this is awful anyway that's another 
That's a whole other <laughs> podcast. Anyway. Another um, one called Best Damn Podcast. So I guess how much does Dale hate <laughs> Doctor Who? I guess if I was telling people where to start, I would probably start with the modern with the modern JJ movies. You know, there's been three of those. You know, Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, and Star Trek Beyond. And if you like those and you kind of like how the characters are, then you could go back and now that you have kind of an introduction to those characters, then if you go back and watch the original series or even some of the early movies, I would start with Wrath of Khan as a, you know... Uh, the fourth movie should be Wrath of Khan. Right, yeah. I mean, or you you could probably... See, I don't know if you if you started with Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan has too much backstory um, maybe to get into it as someone who's never seen any Star Trek before. I mean, you have there's certain motivations of the characters you'd have to understand. But maybe if you watch the J.J. movies, then you could go back and watch Wrath of Khan, or just go back and jump into some of the original series just to get a feel for the characters. Um, Which movie has the guy from Fantasy Island? Wrath of Khan. Ricardo Monteblanc. Is he in more than one? He's in an original series episode called Space Seed, which is where they find a, a floating ship that has people in suspended animation and they wake them up oh that sounds familiar and then they wake up the people and then then later wrath of khan is what's happened 15 years later so so you could watch space seed and then you could watch wrath of khan <laughs> in that order in that order okay. and then you'd have and yeah um so, so it's always hard to tell where to start with stuff. I mean, I would probably start with the more modern things um, and then see if that gives you enough to, to go back. And the next generation, um, you can jump in and watch. I would start same type of thing. I would start probably in the third season or later where stuff is good. And then if you want to go back and revisit the first and second season, Deep Space Nine is pretty solid, but it's a different feel. If you, if you, if you like grittier stuff, I would probably skip, for the most part, watching Voyager or Enterprise because they're just weaker. I mean, there's good shows in there, but just generally, I think they'd be harder to, to grab someone's interest unless you were already a fan. Because they just never really, there were shows that had a premise and had a promise, but they never really. It's like it's like the the writers and whoever was the showrunner of those things just never got off the ground. They kept, you know, well let's go do this. No, let's not. You know, and so those are shows, especially watching them over and over again over the years. You're like, wow, they really missed some opportunities to tell some good stories here. And there are some good stuff in there. I mean, that's kind of like, like once again, I'll, I'll use the, the sports analogy. You'll watch your team lose and lose and lose and they'll win. And you'll watch them lose again and they'll win. You know, what, what most teams don't win more than 50% of their stuff in a, yeah, in a, tough. In a series, right? Mm-hmm. So you're a fan, even though half the time or more, what you watch disappoints you, right? And TV shows are the same way. I would say that, for the original series, I would guess that there's probably more than 50% of those shows are good, and then 20-30% of the shows are okay, and there's a few stinkers. Next Generation, it's real solid from third season on, but the first, second season is real shaky. 
And then uh, Deep Space Nine, they win more than they lose. And Voyager and Enterprise, they lose more than they win. Hmm. You know, so there's always things that make you keep from just giving up, right? It's like, oh, I was going to give up, but okay, look, now you've won two in a row. You know, same thing. I watched Star Trek. Okay, those episodes were bad, but these two were excellent. So I'm going to give you a pass for the ones where it stunk, you know. And then, of course, you forget those, right? You remember the good, you forget the bad. I and then that's, that's what's been really funny about watching these shows again with my kids who have been interested in watching is when we start watching them in order, it's like, oh, man, I totally forgot this episode. This one's really awful. <laughs> we can, we can, well, let's that's just watch cool. it because we're here, <laughs> but we can just make fun of it, you know, rather than whatever. Well, I think that one of the, well, the reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast is because over the years you've been a hoot to talk to and to see your fandom and uh, you can make your passion or the things that you care about interesting to the people that you're talking to. And although I have not jumped into Star Trek land, uh, it's always a pleasure to to hear you talking about and thinking about your entertainment choices and why you like things and uh, don't like things. So I appreciate you being on the show and you've touched on so many things that I'm going to have to bug you again to talk about Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> just, just on the entertainment portion of things, Doctor Who and Battlestar Galactica is the reboot was... It was, for me, one of the best written television shows I've ever seen. Then you should watch Deep Space Nine. Okay. Because Ronald D. Moore got his start writing on Deep Space Nine. Wow. So. That would be... That's, this and is. I don't need a whole episode to <laughs> learn that. Uh, a whole, whole episode of the podcast to learn that from you. But uh, I will do that. I will do that. So... Without further ado, thank you for tuning in to the Best Dan podcast, the Dale Anderson, the Mr. Anderson edition. Uh, subscribe to the podcast if you'd like. And until next time, bye-bye. Yeah.